Not only is it deeply fulfilling to make podcasts that bring new perspectives on society to folks, with Anchor, it's incredibly simple. It's a free podcast host with tons of creation tools that help make cut and polished podcasts straight from your phone or computer. Anchor makes podcasting simple. They distribute your work to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other major platform distributors. They come with a built-in advertising system so you can make money without a minimum listenership. It's got everything you need to make a fantastic podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hello everyone, and welcome to Deconstruct. My name is Fitzgerald Pucci. Deconstruct is a podcast platform that focuses on showing light on prevalent myths of society that affect us in ways to cause us to act us against our own interest. Together, we're going to give brand new historical context to existing myths that have somehow led us down a path that we might not be benefiting from. We'll talk about the history, we'll show the prevalent money trails, and come up with educated alternatives to guide, instruct, and equip a listener to see a perspective from new angles. Today, June 9th, let's talk a little bit about the police. In Seattle, there are scenes that are coming from news organizations, from journalists that depict an active war zone. City residents, journalists, and participants in the protests have been being exposed to toxic and illegal chemical compounds that have been banned in, by the United Nations since 1980. I'm talking about tear gas. It's being used everywhere. And this is bringing us to have truly difficult conversations in our cities, our states, and on the national level. Is it time that we begin to think about disbanding these bodies? Is it time to defund the police? As I say this, the city of Minneapolis recently has passed an unvetoable uh, vote, a resolution from its city council to disband in entirety the Minneapolis Police Department. What has been fiction to us for so long is now unraveling itself as reality right in front of our eyes. The fabric of society is changing as we speak, so today's myth that we'll talk about is the myth that if our society were actually to defund police, would society fall apart? Do we need police in order to keep our society safe? Are we capable of envisioning a new societal dynamic that uses imaginative methods and a deep sense of community care to keep us safe and look out for each other. Is that something that's on the table as a possibility for us right now? So we're going to look at the history, we're going to look at prevalent money trails, prevalent industries that have benefited from this extended tenure of police normality, and then we'll pitch the question to you for you to decide. First, let's start with the origin of where police came from because we've still only existed for a little more than 250 years. Our country is still young, and thus 
Our country's concept of a police force is still young. The police weren't nationally introduced or recognized until 1850. And there was a time beforehand where we existed and functioned very thoroughly and well as a society without the presence of police. So we mentioned 1850, the, the, the year where the usage of police became kind of normal in America. Why is this? Well, law enforcement in many places, especially in the South at that time, started as a patrol of vigilantes to gather and round slaves that had escaped plantations. The original police were a slave patrol. They were armed vigilantes hired by the state to hunt slaves that had escaped and return them to their conditions, which were really brutal because it was slavery. The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was heinous. It helped legitimize the concept of the police on a nationwide scale. It made the federal decree that all free slaves, even the ones in states that had never adopted slavery, were to be rounded up and quote-unquote returned to plantations as property. Many free people in the North were abducted and trafficked as a result of this law, snatching them one more time from their homes and quote-unquote returning them to plantations they never stepped in. That's the origin of police in this country, and we do so well to recognize that that's just not normal. That the idea that we've vaguely taken on ourselves of protect and serve, that that's what they do, doesn't have a background in the detainment of slaves and the pro-slavery take that they've operated under for a long time. That becomes important later on as slavery changes its nature. So now let's talk a little bit about the current context about police effectiveness at clearing crimes, at solving crimes, at making arrests, at putting the quote-unquote bad guys away. Out of all the crimes that take place in the United States, only about half of them are ever reported. And out of that half, 45% of murders are solved. 17% of property crimes are solved. Overall, that translates to these figures. Police only properly handle about 22% of violent crimes. And all the property crimes they handle in the United States? A grand total of 7%. That's right. There are so many people who end up calling the police for help and not getting the closure that they look for. And there are so many people that don't even report. What makes matters more difficult for us as a country is how many times people who call the police end up getting brutalized by the same officers they're asking for help for. Now, let's talk a little bit about budgets. Usually, police budgets are the largest chunk of town and city funds. They're taking up a tremendous amount of resources for a system that we've talked about is far less effective than we imagine it to be. And they continuously pressure towns and cities to expand their already hefty budgets. So what do we spend that money on? We spend billions of those dollars on tanks, on tactical riot gear, and weapons of war designed to kill hundreds of people at a time. Why are we bringing these into our communities? For starters, 
They're involving themselves in lining the pockets of the military-industrial complex. This is the network of arms dealers and war merchants internationally that this year pulled just short of $200 billion worth of profits. For comparison, the U.S. discretionary education budget, the whole budget for the United States and their education, that was $59.9 billion. War contractors took more than triple that budget in profits last year. Now, it's one thing if a national police force uses weapons of war responsibly, but the reality in America is completely different and so much worse. Tear gas is the example. Like we said, in 1980, the United Nations declared indisputably that the usage of chemical weapons in battle was a war crime. Today, the United States police force is using this internationally illegal compound on its own citizens protecting their First Amendment rights. There are so many things that are deeply twisted about this logic. There have been captured responses of people invoking this First Amendment right with militarized cops tear-gassing folks basically responding by saying to hell with your First Amendment rights. And let's keep talking about budgets here because that's a big part of this. Military isn't the only industrial complex that's banking on the police state. Companies like Wayfair, Walmart, AT&T, and Whole Foods depend so much on prison labor to cut their operation costs and maximize their billion-dollar profit margins. So they've been teaming up with private prisons. Prisons that are run by a third-party group that answer to stakeholders rather than the government or the police. They have almost no relationship. And their goal is to arrest and jail as many people as possible so they can profit from their labor. And folks, it's another billion-dollar industry. So we have so much of state and city taxpayer funds going immediately to fuel the bottom line of these two massive industry groups that are doing so much harm to our communities. So let's take a moment to imagine what would happen if police systems are defunded. What repercussions made to those systems that depend on a bloated prison population and a police force that's armed to the teeth? How could those be disrupted? And what would the disruption of those institutions look like? Would a defunded police state lead to the possible collapse of the prison and surplus military industrial complexes? Now, at this, some people might respond, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Defunding just goes too far, buddy. Hold up a second. Why don't we just expand upon the ways for officers to be held accountable? It just sounds a little bit too radical to throw the entire thing out. Aren't we throwing the baby out with the bathwater there? And here's where things get really sticky and really tricky. Modern police unions have found really clever ways to deflect any sense of accountability to officers that commit violent crimes on the job. 
Specific Supreme Court cases have come up with the conclusions that have created a protocol for cops to follow that all but guarantees acquittal for murders and violence that happens on their job. The institutions of police have made it nigh impossible to prosecute them, the folks who commit these crimes. They've established a term called qualified immunity, which comes from a landmark 1982 Supreme Court case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald. It completely protects them from the repercussions of their actions as an extension of government officials. Uh, it protects them from lawsuits and charges that regular civilians would normally have to face. So qualified immunity is the thing that protects them from this. And because of this, there's a very specific set of phrases that a cop can use discussing a fear for one's life at the hands in a circumstance where they find themselves in what they appear to be as mortal danger. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, as long as the assumption in the cop's mind exists that their life is in peril in an interaction to which they execute violence, they can just get off the hook. And that plays into one of the most problematic assets of what's fueling the dependency on police. If one is walking around doing their job with the expectation that any interaction that they have could be one that kills them, that just bakes into the core of one's everyday reality, this intensely vivid paranoia. If every individual is a potential is, is potentially the person that ends your life, I can only imagine the kind of daily stress that puts on an individual. How does one cling to the roots of their humanity if they're caught up in the belief that every interaction they have could kill them? A lot of the p modern police force trainings focus on that, this idea and instill that paranoia as a part of the force. This perception of mortal danger at the hands of that which is not familiar is one of the strongest internal proponents of why racism still continues. Because one, in order to just even survive with this concept and not lose their sanity immediately, there needs to be some kind of designation as to who one can mark safe and who one cannot mark safe. And when it comes to how thoroughly we see racial profiling taking place, the disproportionate, almost sevenfold rates of nonviolent drug arrests from black to white folks, and the immense prison population made of a minority, well, I just can't help but feel as though one of the indicating factors that allows cops to function with this life or death constantly in question mentality is the construction of determining safety or more by the color of one's skin. And this stems from a sentiment of deep distrust to those that we are not familiar with. So let's talk about this. 
Let's talk about the way that we've found ourselves in this mess. Let's talk about how these ideologies have turned us into vessels for a really violent strain of racism. Let's talk about how these ideologies are backed by some of the most dangerous industrial complexes on the planet. When people say defund the police, there's this expectation that the following days that come from that initial decision are going to be filled with chaos, anarchy, and violence. Where there's sort of this expectation that the streets are going to become overrun with the criminals and the killers and the looters that are, we are being protected from in the police. And if, when we look at the figures, that's just not the case. We're p paying so much of the resources that we can designate to things like mental health professionals, that we can designate to community care systems, that we could designate to community defense, modernization of resources, and an ability to get rid of poverty in our communities, which is one of the key proponents, one of the parents of crime itself. <laughs> what happens if we were to take the punitive reactionary system of if someone does a crime, we throw them in jail, we let them rot to teach them a lesson, and then they come out. If, if we addressed the causes of crime at the source with all of this money that we would now suddenly have available to our funds, what would change in our society? What would it look like to... What would it look like if someone called the 911 dispatch and said, Help, I'm having a mental health crisis. And the dispatch sent, instead of a cop, a trained mental health care provider. And instead of an arrest or a shooting or an act of violence against the person experiencing this health crisis, if someone were to be able to immediately receive the care that they needed, heal themselves, and return to normal life, what would that look like for a society? There was a 2015 study that took place that described that folks with untreated mental health issues were 16 more times likely to be fatally shot in any police encounter than someone who was neurotypical. Neurotypical here meaning that there is a just traditional structure of the mind There are uh, compo uh, compared to neurodivergent, where I... Uh, conditions like uh, autism or ADHD or uh, OCD exist. A lot of the folks uh, in society just have different things going on with their minds and adopting a vocabulary like that can be very helpful to normalizing the idea. What if we treated mental illness as a normally occurring piece that we could send trained healthcare professionals to rather than cops? What if we were able to take the budgets that were being used on weapons of war and machines of destruction in these local police stations and instead find ways to invest in new educational technology, sustainable energy? Those options are, are there, they have been there, and we have the ability to take them.
I saw on a Twitter post a, a couple of days ago the idea that it's only radical to talk about defunding the police because we never realized the fact that education has been being defunded so extensively and thoroughly in the past decades. Education has been routinely cut in the budget proposals, and that leftover money has been being fed into those ever-growing police budgets, which is fueled by the prison industrial complex as well as the military industrial complex and depends on our state of mortal fear at that which we feel as though the police are protecting us from. It comes from a deep-seated distrust in our fellow folks, in our neighbors, in our communities, and of imaginary enemies that we are constructing through our vivid paranoid imaginations. So I want to imagine, I want to take a moment to imagine what your local hometown would look like if there weren't a police station, if there were no more racial profile, if there were no implicit bias, if there were no acts of brutality. If Seattle didn't have a police force, they wouldn't be committing humanitarian crimes on a daily basis. What would happen if that happened? If we all did our part to hold each other accountable and keep each other safe with a new pool of resources that we could access. And there would still be some that would say we would fall into anarchy and never come back. I recognize that will feed some of us into the exact same racialized fears that fuel that previous life-or-death paranoia that I spoke about. I say that this ideology comes from the deep-rooted distrust in our fellow humans, and I ask you to consider taking a truly radical step today. To consider trusting in the goodness of people and the human ability to change for the better. What would happen if we centered the next steps around that center ideology and allowed ourselves to heal together as a community? Tomorrow, we'll be getting into the ideas of a topic called restorative justice, it is the modern component and answer to a centuries-long punitive system that has deep roots in indigenous practices and could very well pave the way for the equitable and just society so many people are hoping for. This has been Deconstruct. I want to thank you so much for making it to the end of this episode. I want to thank you for holding the space for the discussions we just had. It's so special, it's so important, that we continue these conversations with the community around us. And if you have any ideas or topics that you'd like us to discuss, please feel free to reach out to us and tell what's on your mind. We're here to listen, and we're here to make it happen. Send us a like, send us a subscription on whatever platform you're using to listen to us. And I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day. I wish you joy, I wish you peace, I wish you safety, and I wish you health. Thank you so much for your time. Stay real, stay sharp, and stay beautiful out there. 
This is Fitzgerald Pucci of Deconstruct.